Our Father, we are told in the early verses of Ephesians that you work all things after the counsel of your will. What that simply means is our lives are not out of control. They're under your control. And this world is not out of control, although at times it seems that it is. And we're all coming from different um, um, places today and different situations and different encounters with people, different telephone calls, different pieces of news. And for some of us, this week has brought news that um, we did not anticipate. Uh, for others in here, it's pretty much gone the way that we thought it would go. And then there are times, Lord, when we wonder what we're doing and if it makes a difference and, and, and if it counts in the long run. There are times when we, get, uh, we just get weary and we get fatigued because life is um, it's, um, it's a struggle at times. It's an uphill climb. Following you is an uphill climb. Following you with our whole hearts means we're always swimming upstream against that current. But once again, we thank you. We thank you that history is going somewhere, and that our lives are not just taking place randomly as life comes our way, but you do have a plan for every guy in this room. You have a plan, and you are working out your purposes, not only for the whole world, but for us as individuals, and somehow you weave that all together. And there are times when, when we don't see how it possibly makes sense. We, we, we don't get what you're doing, We'll say at times that there is no rhyme, there is no reason to this, yet in actuality, we have lived long enough, most of us, to have gone through situations that we thought made no sense, and later we saw the rhyme, and later we saw the reason. And so we keep moving through life, and we keep putting one foot in front of the other, and we keep following you. And we keep trusting with our lives and the issues that are before us. There are many things that we are facing that are out of our control. We, we, we would like to be able to exert more control, but we can't. We are limited. We are finite. Our reach is just not there. We, we, we don't have the influence that we wish that we had. But we are so grateful that you are our Father. And that has never been true of you. you. You were in charge of everything. You were in control of everything. And the things that frustrate us and the things that worry us and the things that concern us, you're in absolute charge there. So tonight, for each guy and each situation that is being faced, we would simply pray this about whatever it is that's looking us in the face and concerning us. We would simply pray this. We would pray that your will would be done. Not our will, not the way we want it to work, not the way we want it to sort out. We don't know what's best. From our perspective, we know what we would like to see happen, but that doesn't mean it's the best thing that should happen. 
So as we pray here tonight on bended knee, not only show would we want to bend our knees, but we would want to bend our wills and bend our hearts and bend our attitudes and give up trying to control things. Sure, we have responsibilities, and we need to be careful to execute those correctly. But the things which we can't control, we surrender to you. And we simply ask that your will would be done and that your name would be honored. We trust you to do what is right. And when we do that, it calms us. It settles us down. And we're okay, because you're in charge. And your will will be accomplished. No one can thwart your hand. What peace that brings to our minds and to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, semester that we've had together, as well as the fall. Thanks for these guys that are so faithful to show up. Once again, we open up your word because we have nowhere else to go. It is the source. It's where we find out about life. It's where we get perspective. It's where our lives get recalibrated. And I would believe tonight that all of us need that. We put forth this prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I've been fighting this uh, voice thing. I'm, I'm not sick. It's just allergies and it gets on my vocal cords. So we'll hope for the best tonight. <clears throat> uh, Hamilton Burger is not a fast food joint. If you're old enough to remember the Perry Mason series, you remember that Hamilton Berger was the DA. He was the district attorney. And you had to feel sorry for the guy because he was always up against Perry Mason, and the sucker never won a case. <laughs> ever. Not once did he ever beat Perry Mason. And, and sometimes, you know, it looked like he had the edge and he had the witnesses and he had the circumstantial evidence and everything was in his favor and it looked like Hamilton was going to get his first victory. But then they'd get to what they would call the closing argument or the, or the summation. And what would happen is Perry would get up and Perry would drive the nail in the coffin. And once again, <clears throat> Hamilton Berger was defeated. Hamilton Berger never once won a case against Perry Mason. We've been going through 2 Timothy. And tonight we're in chapter 4. Uh, chapter 4 is Paul's summation. It's the end of the letter. It's the, uh, it's the closing argument, if you would as he writes to young Timothy. But you know what's interesting about this, and if you're familiar with Paul's epistles, he, he has sort of a uh, MO that he follows in his epistles. He makes his closing point, he makes his closing argument, and then he begins to um, uh, refer to different individuals. When you look at all of Paul's epistles, one commentator has pointed out 
that in all those epistles, Paul, in closing the epistles, referred to over 100 different individuals by name. That's because he was connected with people. He wasn't isolated. He just wasn't, you know, um, some hermit in a monastery somewhere. Paul lived life, and he lived life with people. So in closing his letters, he mentions all these people, and that's at the end of this. But at the beginning of chapter 4, you've got, if you will, the summation. Uh, And it's just not the summation to 2 Timothy, but it's the summation of all the summations that Paul has ever written in all the epistles, because this is his last epistle, as you know. He uh, He is at the end of his life. So in particular, the closing argument here is of great significance because it's the last closing argument. It's the last summation that Paul will ever make in his entire life. (coughs) Excuse me, guys. You'll just have to bear with me here. Um, You don't mind if I spit on that rug, do you, Larry? It's not a problem, is it? We don't have women here. It's one reason we just have the guys. We can just kind of go for it. Um, And you guys just feel free to spit wherever you are. We just ask you to clean up before you leave. Um, the closing argument, if you would, 2 Timothy 4, let me, let, let's look at it. Let me just break it up for you before we jump into it here tonight. Uh, if, you look at verses, um, if you look at verses 1, and, and, and let me get there. I'm almost there, but somebody put gum in my Bible, and I can't get the page. If you look at uh, 2 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 1, down to verse 8. That's the summation, and that's the closing argument. That's what I would call the, uh, the final... I, I personally, I put that in my notes as that's the final charge, verses 1 through 8. And then, beginning with verse 9, you've got final thoughts, mainly about people. Now... In verses 1 through 8, going back to the summation and going back to the closing argument, I would break that up into two sections. Uh, In verses 1 through 5, I would break it up this way. Um, Your stain, Paul says to Timothy, your stain, verses 6 through 8, I'm leaving. That's what he's doing here. Now, with that in mind... The fact that Timothy's staying, Paul's getting ready to die. He's going to leave. So, Timothy, you're staying. Therefore, I'm going to give you a charge. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, that's serious. You don't get any more serious than this. This This is a final charge. This is a final task. This is a final responsibility. And Paul's getting ready to check out. And this is in the presence of Almighty God. It's in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So so that's the context. Um, So often our lives, we, we live life right here. We got so much stuff on our plate. Usually, you got a to do list. And if you're like me, you get that to-do list for the day, you get it checked off, and you might make a dent in it, and you might get four, five, six things knocked off, but really, at the end of the day, you haven't made any progress because you've added five or six more things. 
Life is so daily. Life is uh, um, perpetual. Life just keeps coming at you. Stuff just keeps coming at you. And so what happens is, because we're, we're trying to make it and we're trying to handle it and we're trying to juggle all these balls and keep everything synchronized, what, what happens is, is that at, at, at times we, we just, we forget the long view. We forget where we're going. We're so right here with what's before us. What he is doing here with Timothy is that he is, uh, he's taking the big picture. He, he's getting him off right here. And in verse 1, he's reminding him, Timothy, look it. All that's going on in life is not just what's in front of you right now. Uh, hey, guys, Christ is coming back. And he's going to take care of all this stuff. Isn't that great? He's going to handle it. Not that he's not handling it now. But one day he's coming back. And one day he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. And that mountain's going to split. He's going to walk in that eastern gate. It's going to be great. It's going to be unbelievable. And because of that fact, because, because Christ is coming, and because one day we're all going to give an account. Now, believers have a different judgment than those who don't know Christ. There will be a great white throne judgment. That is for those who don't know Christ. Believers will not be at the great white throne judgment. We'll be at the Bema seat. Because, you see, we've been redeemed by Christ. We've been forgiven. Christ went to the cross. He, he, he paid the debt we couldn't pay. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no interest in God. You say, well, I had an interest in God. That's because he was pulling you to himself. Psalm 14 says there's no one who seeks God. No one. So if left to our own devices, none of us want him. None of us will seek him. None of us are interested in him. We love him because he, he came and got us. We didn't go after him. So Ephesians 2.1 says, even when, we were, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. So what he did was, is that by that sacrifice on the cross, he did a remarkable work in our lives, and we prayed and asked him to come into our lives, and we trusted in Christ alone. The fact that you... Prayed that prayer of faith was the result of him giving you the faith to pray it. Because on your own, you didn't have the faith. You didn't have the capability. You didn't have the ability. You were dead. You say, man, that's, that's pretty harsh. Well, it's pretty true. It's where we are. We are locked up in sin until Christ breaks in and pulls us to himself. And it's an amazing thing when it occurs and it's an amazing thing when it happens. When we trust in Christ alone for salvation, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when we're given a new nature, when we suddenly have a desire to follow him, when we suddenly have an, a, a desire to please him, when we suddenly have a desire to honor him, not that we always do, when we, when we suddenly have a desire to, to 
to read his word and, and to find out about him. And we, we want to get to know him and we want to grow and we want to become more like him. See, when, when that's happening, that's, that's, that's an indicator that you have received eternal life. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when Christ comes in and regenerates your heart. <coughs> Did you know that? If you know Christ, you have eternal life. <coughs> you can't lose it. Now, does everyone who goes forward at a crusade, does that mean they have eternal life? No? Because there are false teachers in the church. And there are false believers in the church. John said they went out from us because they were not of us. If you know Christ, you will be at the Bema seat, which is not a judgment of whether or not you're in heaven. It's a judgment of reward. Very interesting, very different. Don't have time to get, get into all of it. But, but, we've got to live our lives daily, guys, in light of the fact that one day we're going to stand before Christ. And we're going to give an account. I'm going to give an account for how I live my life. You're going to give an account for how you live your, your life. And by the way, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He sees what's going on. He knows what we're doing. You know, we make it our aim to please him. What, what, what Paul is doing here, before he gives this charge in verse 2 to Timothy, he's painting, he's giving him the, the, the big picture. He's reminding him of what's coming. He's reminding him of that day. Christ is coming back. In light of that, in light of that, Timothy, here's the charge. And this is serious. Verse 2, to this young man, this young pastor, what does he say? He says, grow your church. That's not what he says. That's not what he says. It's amazing how many young pastors think that's their job. Grow your church. Get them in any way you can get them. Market it. Website it. Direct mail it. Do whatever you can do to get them in. That's not what he says. He says, hey, and guys, isn't it true when all else fails... Read the directions. Have you ever tried to do it on your own? You get something, you say, oh, I'll just put that there. That can't be that hard, and you screw it up. And then what do you do? Your wife says, um, you want me to read the directions to you? I, no, I shouldn't have done that. Doesn't that just irritate you, though? Because she's watching, and she knows you're going to screw it up. And you screw it up. And then she says, you know, you want me to read the directions? And finally, finally you break down and say, yeah, read the directions to me. And when you do it by the directions, guess what? It works. It always works. Verse 2. Preach the word. That's it. Preach the word. In every generation, you know what's needed? We need someone to preach the word. In every generation. How many of you guys 
Your lives were changed because you heard somebody preach the word of God. Let me see your hand. Okay? There it is. That's what's needed. That's what, that's what changes people's hearts. That's what changes people's lives. That's what changes families. That's what changes cultures. That's what changes nations. That's what gets families off of welfare. That's what gets people off of drugs and chemical addictions and all kinds of... Preach the word. There's the charge. It's... it's it's the final summation. Preach the word, Timothy. Preach it. Now, is this the first time he's heard this? No. No, not at all. But he just keeps coming back to it. He keeps hammering it. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort. With great patience and instruction. Keep staying at it. Sometimes they're going to respond. Sometimes they're not going to respond. Um, I've been, uh, oh, over the last week or so, two weeks, when I'm on a plane, I, I've been reading this book on Jonathan Edwards, uh, the story of, it's a biography. I, I read several on his life, but this one kind of focuses in on his relationship with his wife and, you know, their ministry. Jonathan Edwards was, uh, when the Encyclopedia Britannica um, wasn't politically correct, if you go back and read the 62 or 63 or 64 version, or prior to that, the, the article on Jonathan Edwards, they said he was the greatest mind that America ever produced. And today, if kids know anything about him at all, they just do sinners in the hands of an angry God and paint him as some wild-eyed guy, uh, which he wasn't. He was a brilliant student of the Word of God, brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, I mean, a case could be made, the greatest mind that America ever produced, um, would labor and labor and labor over his sermons and preach his sermons. Interesting to watch uh, his ministry. He would preach the Word and to see the opposition that he got. Uh, after, after years and years and years, they, they literally, they just flat ran him out of town. A man, a man who preached the word. And nobody wanted him. And he and his wife and his 11 kids, you know where they went? They went up to work with the Indians out in the frontier. Um, he preached the word. They didn't want to, they just, they, there were seasons, there was a season where they responded, where the Spirit of God moved. But then there was a season where they didn't want to hear it. Um, sometimes it's convenient to preach the Word. Sometimes it isn't. So you preach it. You just keep preaching it, in season and out of season. When it's popular and when it's not popular, you just preach the Word. Verse 3. <coughs> and, he, and he reminds him. He says, for the time will come, Timothy, the time will come, when they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear truth. But watch this. Man, does this describe our day or what? But wanting to have their ears tickled. 
they will accumulate for themselves. Teachers in accordance to their own desires. See, he's saying, hey, there's going to come a time when they don't want truth. What they want is they just want, tell me what I want to hear. They're going to, you know, people accumulate different things. People collect, they're collectors. I mean, some guys collect baseball cars, you know, classic cars. uh, I mean, you know, stamps. People accumulate different things. Just look at your garage. You accumulate different things, right? Uh, The time's going to come, Timothy. They They don't want the word of God. They don't want to hear the word preached. They want their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. He says, count on it. It's coming. Plan on it. Verse 4, they're going to turn their ears away from the truth. If I'm not mistaken, this is the sixth time in this book that he's referred to truth. Uh, Go back to chapter 2, verse 15. Because, again, he's hitting this thing hard. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, Timothy, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of what? Truth. It's all about truth. Interesting, isn't it, that we live in what we call the postmodern generation, the postmodern, we're in a postmodern culture. And when you hear that term, what does postmodern mean? Postmodern means there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute right. There is no absolute wrong. Oh, well, that may be true for you, but that doesn't mean it's true for me. Is that not our culture? Is that not the spirit of the age? That's your truth. That's not my truth. No, there's truth that comes from heaven above. There is a God. There is a God. There, there is law in the Old Testament. There are ten commandments in, in the Old Testament. Um, look at 2.18. He's speaking of Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the what? Truth. Look at 2.25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, or perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Look at 3 7. Um, speaking about false teachers, always learning and never able to come, or, or the, the, rather the false teachers and, and the weak women, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at 3 8. Just as Jonas and John Bray's opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the, the truth. You know what? When you're charged to preach the word, you can expect opposition, not only outside the church, but inside the church. Because you see, they don't often want to hear the truth. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me, tell me what I... No, no, see, I believe this. You tell me that. See, I believe the Bible says this. Yeah, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says this. Well, I think everyone has their own code. No, that's not what it says. Preach the word. We're living in a day where people want it their way. <coughs> I'm, uh, I'm editing 
and I'm also breathing, and I'm trying to clear my throat. It, uh, sometimes a pregnant pause, you think this guy's really, I'm just trying to clear my throat, actually, is what I'm trying to do. Nothing more significant than that. Uh, but it doesn't really describe our day and our culture. I mean, this is where we are. I mean, we, we, we live in a culture that's lost its mind. Have we not? Can you believe how far uh, off we are? It's just staggering, is it not? But God is still working, guys. Hey, flip over to, uh, go to your left, go to Colossians. Why do you keep preaching the word? The culture's falling apart, da-da-da, this is happening. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, watch this, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Do you know how many people today in the Metroplex came to know Christ? I don't know. But somebody did. How many? I don't know. Eight, 12, 15? I would, I would think more than that. See, I don't know. But I'll tell you this. In a culture that's fallen apart, the gospel is still increasing. People are still having their lives changed. People are still coming to the Lord. You see, we can't lose hope. But, but, but the only hope to a culture that's fallen apart is to preach the word. That's the only hope. So, and I try not to, I, I really try not to look at the Christian stations too much. But there's a, sort of this love-hate thing sometimes. And, you know, there's some good guys on there, but then they're the weird guys. And I may have told you this about three, four months ago. I saw the guy with the big church, and he, and he was standing on stage, and there was a ramp there and a ramp there, and he had a motorcycle jump He had an evil Knievel thing going on on Sunday morning. And this guy's got a huge church, and I'm wondering how many young pastors, which they had the budget, to go get the cycle and the guy and the ramps. And hey, hey, you know what? Forget that. Preach the word. Just preach the word. You don't need gimmicks. Just, just, just preach the word. That's all you need to do. My friend John Brandon was here this weekend and, uh, and his wife Nancy. I met John when I was a rookie pastor. I met him the third Sunday that I was at Central Peninsula Church in Foster City, California. And the first Sunday there were 58 people there. And I preached and the second Sunday there were 27, I think. <laughs> and I don't know how many were there the third Sunday, but they were dropping like flies. And I remember John had just graduated from college and just married his wife, and they came, and, you know, it was John, 22. And he and his wife walk in, and they stayed. They stayed. 
And he's been a part of that church ever since. He's chairman of the elder board now. How many years ago was that? Um, that was 77. That's 94 years. That's a long time. And it was fun because we had a little bit of time together and we were just kind of going over some of those early years. And we didn't know what we were doing. But, you know, I'd been taught, you preach the Bible. That's what I'd been taught. And I'd go down and have lunch with Ray Stedman at Peninsula Bible Church. And I'd check in with Ray every once in a while. And, you know, he was a great mentor. And that's what Ray did. Ray just would preach the Bible. He just preached the word. So then I'd go preach the word, because Ray did it. And I wanted to be like Ray, you know. That's why I never preach a sermon without checking out what Ray said. And half the time I was preaching Ray's sermon. You know? You do that when you're getting started just because you're kind of scared of what you'd say. And I wanted to make sure I was on track. But but you know, it's just interesting to look back over the years and just preaching the word, what what God does. It's not you or this guy, it's what the Word of God does. And to see people come to Christ and to see people grow and mature and have their lives change, preach the word. Preach the word. Let's go back to uh, Second Second Timothy here. Um, look at verse five. He says, "But you." Uh, some people are going to s- turn aside to myths. They're going to turn aside to gimmicks. They're going to turn aside to this and this and all that. It, you know, it's funny. John and Nancy were here with us Sunday morning at uh, the second service, and we were walking out and. Uh, and uh, John hadn't heard Chuck speak in years and years and years. And we were walking out, and he just kind of looked at me, and he said, he still brings it, doesn't he? And I said, yeah, he does. But what's he doing? He's preaching the word. You know? He's just preaching the word. But you, Timothy, verse 5, be sober in all things. You know what it is to be sober? It's to be serious about your purpose. That's what it means to be sober. Be serious about your purpose in life. Have some gravitas. Have some weight. Have some ballast in your ship. Don't swing this way. Don't swing that way. You, you need some ballast. You need some gravel. You need some gravitas. Be, be, be serious about your purpose. Uh, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Let me tell you something. You preach the word, you're going to get hardship in this culture. You preach what the Bible says, people aren't going to like you. you at, at, with friends, with people that you know and associate with, uh, you have conversation, you take a stand on a biblical principle, they're not going to like you. You're going to have to endure hardship. Why? Because we've drifted so far. I mean, they're just crucifying this young girl, aren't they? This gal. I mean, they got her in the sights. Gosh, you know, she'd probably undo some things she's done in the past. You know, we all would. But you know what? She took a stand. I'll give her that. She took a stand. That took some guts. 
And God bless her for it. She's having to endure in hardship. Why? She stood on truth. Now, marriage is a man and a woman. That's what, that's what the Bible says. I've had people get upset at me at times about all kinds of things. You mean we're not supposed to sleep together? We're, we're, well, we really love each other. We're, are you married? No. Well, we're, but we really love each other. And you're saying it's wrong. I'm not saying. I'm saying the Bible says it's wrong. Well, who, who are you to judge us? I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you what it says. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. If you're not married to her, keep your cotton-picking hands off her. She doesn't belong to you. They don't want to hear it. Oh, but I really am a Christian. I, well, you know, you really are a Christian. Uh-huh. Yet you're not convicted by what the Word of God says. And you can ignore what the Word of God says, and there's no conviction by the Spirit of God in your life when it's clear, revealed truth, and you say, no, I don't believe that, and I'm not doing that, and you tell me you know Christ, and he's in your life? Really? Huh. Well, I think you're deceiving yourself. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You don't fight him. You don't buck him. You don't go against him. You don't hire an attorney to argue against him. What do you do? You follow him. You follow him. You agree with him. Now, do we always live that way? No. But we desire to. Uh, but you be sober in all things and do our hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. See, Paul is saying all this to Timothy because Timothy is staying. Now watch what happens in verse 6. Paul is get, Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. That's why I'm giving you this charge. I like how Warren Wearsby broke this up in verses 6, 7, 8. In verse 6, <clears throat> Paul looks around. Look at verse 6. See, in verse 5, he says, but you. Now in verse 6, he says, for I. Now he's on himself. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering at the time, and the time of my departure has come. When Paul looks around, that's where he is. I'm being poured out. I'm in this prison in Rome. I'm in this dungeon. And guess what? I'm not getting out of here. This is the last chapter for me. Uh, the time of my departure has come. It's imminent. It's any day. It might be next week. It might be in three months, but it's coming. I'm never getting out of here. I, I, had a, I was in Rome before and got out, but not this time. This is it. So he looks around, and it's very clear to Paul this is the last chapter. I'm leaving, Timothy. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, instead of looking around, he looks back. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So by inference, hey, Timothy, as I look back over my life, I have fought the good fight. Now, you know what you need to do? You need to fight the good fight. As I look back over my life, I have finished the course. You need to run the race. Uh, I have kept the faith. I'm at the end. 
You need to continue to keep the faith. See, you're just getting started. You're just getting rolling. I'm checking out. And then in verse 8, he now looks ahead. So in 6, he looks around. 7, he looks back. In 8, he looks ahead. In the future, you see that? He's looking ahead. You ever get discouraged? You ever get depressed? Just look ahead. Look to what's coming. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I think I shared with you um, what Franklin Graham said a few months ago about his father, Billy. He said, my dad, has, my dad has always been ready to die. My dad has always been prepared to die. But my dad was not ready or prepared for old age. Mr. Graham is getting old. He's frail. He's not preaching anymore. He can barely get around. We're all in that process, aren't we? We're all in that process. Um, when I was a kid, I didn't think a lot about heaven. Did you? One of my greatest fears, I, I, I remember this so clearly. I was, about, I was about eight, nine years old. And I remember I was in the back seat, and it was after Sunday night church. And... Um, I stood up, because we didn't have seat belts back then. And by the way, we rode bikes and we didn't wear helmets. It was a hard era back then. But I stood up in that seat, and there's a little hump, you know. And I stood up and straddled it. And the pastor had been talking about the return of the Lord. And I was asking my dad some questions. And... Uh, and I asked my dad when he thought the Lord would come back. And he said, well, Steve, we don't know. He could come back at any time. I said, he can come back any time? And he goes, yeah. I mean, he can come back tonight? He goes, yeah. Really? I mean, any time, Daddy, any time. You think he will come back tonight? Well, I don't know. I mean, you think he will? Steve, I don't know. He could, but it might not be for... And I said, Dad, i got to tell you something. I really don't want him to come back. He said, why don't you, Steve? He said, Dad, I said, you know, Dad, I really want to get my driver's license. And I'm going to tell you something. I really did. I really did. You know, that's how you think when you're a kid. I didn't get all the heaven stuff. I get it now. Don't you? No. I don't know about you, but... Here's how I'd like to go out. I'd just like to have a massive coronary and drop. Huh? Oh, in your sleep. There you go, Larry. Massive coronary while you're sleeping and you just had prime rib and a baked potato. That's good. You've thought about this, I can tell. You put some real thought into this. I'm with you. I vote for that. Now, you know what? That's what happens to some guys. Does it happen to everybody? No, we don't know, we don't know how it's going to come. 
I've told you guys how much I appreciate the ministry over the years of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who died in 1981. He was pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. Um, uh, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, was when he was preaching, he was a phenomenal preacher, phenomenal, phenomenal preacher. And uh, a lot of people didn't like his church, and he got a lot of criticism. Um, if you went to a service at Westminster Chapel on a Sunday morning, what would happen is um, Lloyd-Jones would come out, would take the elevated pulpit, would have everyone stand, and they would sing a hymn. Uh, there was no choir. There was... Uh, there was no worship leader. Nothing wrong with that. But Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't want to have that. Then there would be two or three other hymns, and you would sing and follow the words, which Martin Lloyd-Jones would choose. And then he would lead in a pastoral prayer that went somewhere between 10 to 15 minutes. And then you would be seated and the ushers would receive the offering and then Martin Lloyd-Jones would get up and preach the Bible for close to an hour. And then there would be prayer, there would be prayer and the service would be dismissed. Oh, and then uh, that evening, Martin Lloyd-Jones would get on a train, probably at Houston Station, and go somewhere to Wales or north, two, three hour uh, ride, and he would preach Monday night Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Then on Thursday, he would get on a train and come back to London. Friday night, in the fellowship hall, he had a Friday night theology class, and he would teach systematic theology, which are now recorded in the volumes, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and the Church, which total are about this thick, and which I have in my library. And then on Saturday, he would take Saturday off, and then on Sunday, he'd start all over again. He said, well, what would he do during the day when he was out? He would study. What would he do on the train? He would study. You know what this guy did with his whole life? He preached the word. That's just what he did. And they didn't have a lot of ministries, and some people would get upset. Now, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong. Uh, I'll tell you what. I love the worship here. I love the choir. I, love, I, just, I mean, I love it. But there, they didn't, they didn't have the funds. They didn't have, so they just didn't do it. They just preached the word. I, I sometimes get on uh, church websites because I'm invited to speak, and we always check, a you know, Lou checks out the church, and we check the doctrinal statement. He'll say, check out this website. And it always amazes me sometimes all the stuff they've got going on. And I might have told you this. Recently, this one church invited me, and I got on their website and clicked men's ministry. And I mean, they must have had 19 different activities. Men's ministry, they got a soccer ministry, they got a woodworking ministry, they got. How do you do a woodworking ministry? I, I mean, I don't, I guess you can do it. I, I mean, that's fine. But, they, I mean, they, you know, they had roller derby, they had this, they had, I, I, I don't know. It was just all this stuff. And I got done reading and I was exhausted. I mean, I was kind of worn out, to tell you the truth. It just, it just kind of, it just wore me out. What I didn't see 
Uh, go back to 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I'm not saying that church doesn't do it. I'm just saying it wasn't clear that they did it. They had so much activity. They had so much stuff. It all comes back. You preach the word. You teach the word. Um, this is the charge. This is, this is of unique importance. This, this is critical. In a day and age where there is no truth, you've got to preach the word. It's the word of God that changes people's lives. It's the word of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we proclaim Christ. We proclaim the word of God. But what does that do? It changes people's lives. And then we get people involved. We get different ministries and all that. That's great. But it all centers around the word of God, doesn't it? And that was the final charge to Timothy. Um, that's why you guys are here in this church. Because the word of God is central in this church. Now, now, okay? Paul's getting ready to check out. Paul's getting ready to die. He's re getting ready to go to heaven. He, he's, he, he's done it. He's finished. It's over, you know? But now you got to, that, that's the final charge to Timothy. But now you got a section. This next section is very interesting in light of what we've just read. Because, you know, you got the appearing of Christ, preach the word, and season out, da-da-da, I'm ready to depart, da-da-da. And look at verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. Look at verse 13. Oh, when you come, bring the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchment. I love that. You know why I love it? Have you ever heard the phrase that someone can be so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good? You ever heard that? <clears throat> Here this guy is given the final charge you know, Timothy, the thing's falling apart. Preach the word in season out. I mean, he's just thumping it. And then he switches gears. Verse 9. What you got here are the final practical thoughts. What, what I, what, the point I'm trying to make here, guys, is that even in light of what's coming, in light of Christ's return, in light of how we know things are going to turn out ultimately, you know what? We still live our lives daily. We live them daily. So that means you, you, you don't have to pick up your family and move to New Zealand. It means you stay where you are and you go about business and you go about life and you follow Christ. I, I want you to notice how practical this stuff is. Because... Paul, Paul, Paul was, he's getting ready to die, but he hasn't died yet. So you know what he's doing? He's still doing life. He's still managing his life. He still has needs. He still has situations. Watch how practical this is. So Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. I need you to get here. Well, he might die tomorrow. Yeah, but he may not. He needs Timothy. I want you to make every effort to get your tail up here. Look at verse 10. Well, one reason is, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That had to be hard. You ever have someone who's close to you desert you? You ever have someone that you've uh, 
teamed up with betray you? You ever have somebody you trusted, you thought you could count on, cut your feet out from under you? Paul knew how that felt. You're not alone. That's part of life sometimes. Now, it's very easy when that happens to get bitter. It's very easy to get angry with God. It's very easy to have a... You can't do that. You can't do that. You just keep staying with it. Uh, he says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. That'd be Yugoslavia as we know it. Verse 11. Look how practical this is. O- only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. You know what's interesting about that? Flip over to Acts 15. You know, a lot of times we screw up. And sometimes when we screw up, we think we can never be used. You know, we fail, we make a mistake, we we do something that's really dumb, we do something that just, gosh, I shouldn't have done that, and then we think we'll never be used again. What's interesting about that statement about pick up Mark is that in Acts 15, verse 36, they're on the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them. Isn't that interesting? Barnabas says, no, let's take him. Paul says, I'm not taking him. He deserted us. He cut out on us. Look at 39. There occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, committed uh, committed to the brethren by the grace of the Lord. So you actually had a split between Barnabas and Paul because of this guy Mark who had deserted. Isn't it interesting, back in 2 Timothy? What does Paul say to Timothy? He goes, hey, Timothy, when you come, pick up Mark. Pick up Mark. Uh, I like that. Because you know what that tells me? You always get another run at it. We've all screwed up. We've all fallen short. But you know what? I think Mark learned some things. I think at a certain point in his life, there was some repentance. I think there was some tears. Um, Maybe a little confrontation. You know, I had something this past week. I I had two people that I I deeply respect uh, give me, uh, two people within 24 hours give me constructive criticism, and they both said the same thing. And in both cases, I was shocked. Number one, that they would need to give me constructive criticism. (laughs) But when I hear the same thing twice from two different people that I respect, you know what I figure? That's like a FedEx letter from the Lord. You know, these guys always walk around and say, you know, the Lord told me, the Lord, the Lord, hey, let me tell you something. That's how I know the Lord's talking to me. When two people, I respect their walk independently of one another, in a gracious spirit, say the same thing to me, I better listen up. I think Mark listened and he grew. He became valuable to Paul. Have you screwed up? Have you messed up? You're not put on the shelf. God's going to use that in your life. He used it in Mark's life. Um, I got to hustle here, guys. Back, back real quick. 
Second Timothy. I'm going to highlight some of this stuff. Uh, I, I love that, don't you, in 13? When you come, bring the cloak I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchment. Bring the parchment. Well, you know, well hey, 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 man, you, you might die on Thursday. Yeah, but I might not. He, he's still going. He's not checking out. He's not retiring. He's still moving. He's still functioning. He's still kicking until he hits that final tape. Look again uh, at 14. This is just real practical stuff. Hey, by the way, Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Uh, you be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. You know what this is from 9 to 22? It's a quilt. A quilt. Do you got any quilts at your house? The old quilts? They used to sit around and make those patchwork quilts. And they make no sense because they would just take, you know, a cutting from this and a cutting from that and a cutting from that, and they just cut it, they just put it all together. That's what this is. In your life and in my life, we have all these different quilts of people that God has put in our lives. Some of them have been positive. Some of them have influenced us. Some of them encourage us. Some of us are just the most wonderful people in the world. We love the relationship. Others have undercut us. They've hurt us. they tried to do damage to us. We've all got it. We've all got it. It's just part of life. It's part of being a Christian. It's just life. So do you get bitter? Do you get resentful? Do you get hung over it? No, you just keep moving. You just keep moving. Look again at 16. At my first offense, he's talking about in Rome, probably the first hearing. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So here he is, deserted again. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through the proclamation might be fully accomplished, that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He, he, he's not all bitter. He's not upset. He's not focused on all that. He's just saying, hey, I've had some stuff, stuff going on here, but you know what? The Lord's delivered me. He's rescued me, and I'm going to heaven. That's what's happening. I, I was talking about uh, how I want to go out. It's just easy. It's a lot easier to have the prime rib and baked potato, go home, go to sleep, and have a massive coronary, and just go to heaven. But it may not happen that way. You might grow old. You might get infirm. You know, at the beginning of this semester, in January, um, I went out to California because my dad took that fall and uh, never regained consciousness and passed away, went to be with the Lord. I remember, though, the last time my mom and dad were visiting with us, stayed with us for a few weeks. And we were getting out of the car to go to some restaurant. And my, my dad had always been just in phenomenal health till he was 80. He just was in phenomenal health. I, I think he'd spent one night in the hospital his whole life, and that was for observation on something, went out the next day. He'd never been sick until he was 80. And just in unbelievable shape. And uh, got the cancer at 80, and the chemotherapy started breaking down. He just aged. We're, we're getting out of the car to go into, I think it was the cotton patch, actually. And uh, we got to get my dad's walker out. He hated that sucker. 
He hated it. And you know what else he hated? He hated it when he was here the last time. He couldn't drive. My mom had to drive. And that really hacked him off. He did not want her to be driving. But she had to drive because he couldn't do it. So we're going to the cotton patch, and we get out. And, you know, it takes a while. Cause, and then it took my dad, it took him quite a while just to get out of the car. It just took him a long time because he was old. He was aging. And then we'd get his walker, and he'd get that thing. And, I mean, he, he just hated that thing. And I remember we're going to the cotton patch. And he said, hey, Steve. And I said, what, Dad? He goes, don't ever get old. <laughs> I said, okay. He said, it's a, he said, he said Steve is a drag. I said, yeah, I know, Dad. He didn't like it. But it's where he was. Um, Paul was going to be beheaded here. He was going to die. We don't know if Timothy made it to see him in time or not. We don't know what happened. This is our last uh, session, and we'll pick it up again, Lord willing, in September. And you know what's interesting? I hope you guys come back and join us. But some of you guys may not be around to join us. Every time we break in May and pick it up in September, there's one or two or three guys who aren't around to pick it up the next time around. And you always think, when every time I say this, you always think it's the guy next to you. <laughs> I sure as heck know it's not me. But we don't know that, do we? You may go quickly, you may go slowly, but you're going. And so am I at the time that's been appointed. Um, I don't want to assume anything as we leave here tonight. I know most of you guys have a relationship with Christ and you've trusted in Him alone, He's your Savior. And you're following him. He's first in your life. You're growing in your faith. But it's possible that you've been coming for a while and or maybe you're just here, you know, you've come one or two times and you're here. I, I don't know. But, but you've never really seriously dealt with this issue. Seriously. You may have dealt with it, but I'm talking about serious. Serious. Every guy in this room is going to die. We think in your head you've got a time allotted. You think you're, you've got, and you don't know that. You just don't know. Christ came to die for your sin. He came to die for my sin. Without him, we are helpless. Without him, we are lost. You will live forever somewhere. 
but it's only through Christ that our sins are forgiven and we are given eternal life. It's only through the name of Jesus. There's no other name given to men under heaven by which they may be saved except for the name of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you've never trusted in Christ alone for forgiveness of sin, you should know that he is God. You should know that he, he lived a sinless life, that he went to the cross to pay for your sin. The just, the just penalty for your sin that should have gone on you went on him. And he took that sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've never trusted Christ for salvation, if you've never asked him to come into your life, Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You trust in him alone. And you don't have to clean yourself up and you don't have to go out and improve your life and fix this and fix this before you come to him. You just come as you are. If you've never done that, I'd like to take a moment and just have a moment of silence. And from your heart, just simply pray, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm living in rebellion to you. I believe you're God. I believe you died for me. Come into my life. Forgive me. Make me the man you want me to be. Well, words to that effect. He'll know your heart. If you need to talk with someone, I'm here. We've got other guys. I'd be happy to talk with you. That's, that's okay. Don't let that throw you. Let's just, let's just bow our heads and let's be still and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you that you've looked upon us and you've had pity upon our hopeless condition. And that you offer us the most remarkable gift in the world gift of forgiveness and a right relationship with you. Our lives don't have to be screwed up anymore. We come to you and our sins are forgiven and you begin to put us back together again. And it's a process. And then one day we die as Paul died. And then all the choices and all the decisions and all the days that we lived and the choices we made and all of that is going to come to task. And on that day that we die, we're going to know in our hearts if we lived a foolish life or if we lived a wise life. The foolish man built his house on the sand and the wise man built his house upon the rock. We want to build our houses upon you.
There's no other foundation. We've all fallen short. We've all failed miserably. But what a Savior you are. What a Savior. We are so grateful for Christ. And we embrace you, and we thank you, more importantly, that you've embraced us. And you've said to us in your word, your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. You not only forget our, forgive our sin, but you forget our sin. That's amazing love and amazing grace. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord, during this break. And by your will, we will meet again in September. But it's by your will and by your appointment. We trust you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.